In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of Paw and Order. Glad to be with you back on Canadian soil. I am Peter Sankoff, and I am here today, not in person, but at least in the same country, with my co-host, Camille Lapchuk. Hey, Peter. Good to have you back on the continent. Good to be back on the continent, I think. Yeah, it's yeah. let's go with good, Camille. 28 days away was a long time. Really good to be back here and... Uh, dealing with all the many things on my plate, getting ready for a wonderful year ahead. I, I, to me, this is the end of the year. People find that weird, but the beginning of the school year, the academic year, is how I mark the season. So uh, we are literally coming down to the end of the good part of the year. Sorry, all my students. And really coming quickly towards the other part of the year that starts in September. Yeah, yeah. I know the feeling. I, I, usually the summer is kind of more relaxing, but this summer I feel like it's just been playing catch up and trying to get back on top of all the stuff that got busy throughout the uh, school year, so to speak. But still got another month to power through. I've been working on the Animal Law Conference a lot. Um, I got to say, by the time this episode comes out, it's possible that all the tickets might be sold out. It is going fast. Got a great lineup wow. of speakers. Uh, just going to be a really great event. So if you want to join us and you haven't bought your ticket yet, you may still be in luck if you go check the website soon and, and pick up a ticket. So that's been going well. But and can 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 we say, Camille, that I think we've said this before, but like let's be honest, this will be the only open session pawn order live recording at least for the next year. So like that's reason alone. Even if you don't want to come for the conference, you can come for a live recording upon order. That's true. That's a very good point. So there's a student conference happening on Friday, October 4th, before the main conference begins. And Peter and I are going to sit down with students and do a live Q&A open season on us kind of session for, for the episode. So it should be fun. I can't wait, Camille. I'm, I'm, I'm not just like pretend excited i'm like really excited that's gonna be a lot of fun yeah yeah and uh you know other than that i'm headed to st john's newfoundland this weekend for a wedding my friend melissa from law school she's marrying cbc comedian mark critch so it should be a fun probably a fun e-wedding uh and then wow peter i think i'm gonna see some puffins have you wow, ever seen very a puffin? excited for you camille um, I believe I have seen puffins before. Yes, in uh, in when I was in Norway many many years ago. But yes, it's always exciting to see puffins. Well, I pr I promise everyone to provide the puffin update on the next episode. But anyway, enough about Canada. Oh God, Canada. be still my heart. <laughs> enough about Canada. I want to hear all about your Europe trip and more specifically, what did you eat? Well, Camille, um, as you know, when we spoke last, I was uh, in the middle of my Europe trip, but I hadn't uh, yet completed it. I believe I was on my way to Riga in Latvia um, when I spoke to you. That was unquestionably the highlight of uh, my trip. We had two days in Riga, very highly recommended place to go and visit for all of you out there. Um, 
And it was great. It was a wonderful place to be. Uh, really enjoyed it. It's like an old medieval European capital. So it was uh, just incredibly set up. And uh, the... Um, it was especially nice because I went uh, with just my wife, which is always nice. We left our kids with uh, a relative. And that was really, honestly, it could have been like Siberia. I wouldn't have cared. It was just nice. Sorry, my kids might listen to this one day. Um, they will. Uh, it, was, it was great. But I did something else with my kids that I'll come up in just a minute. But Latvia was like that. And Camille, we happened to be there um, on our last day was... Latvia does these every three months. They have vegan street food fests. I kid you not. Whoa. And we were there for that. Yeah, it was fantastic. It was really, that was the highlight of the trip because I told you, Camille, Camille knows this already because I sent her a text. But it was like, you know, you're looking for the local vegan restaurants. You want to try everything out. And we really hit a vegan restaurant that just, you know, just wasn't that good. And there's nothing I hate more than visiting crappy vegan restaurants because, like, you really, you go out of your way to find them and you go and look for them and you sit down and the menu looks good and the food's just kind of crappy. You've, you've had that experience before. Yeah, we've all been there. Yeah, it's the worst, though, especially when you're traveling, right? Because you only have a certain number of meals in this place that you want to try. But um, the, the, what was sort of the blessing in disguise was that meal was so crappy that the next day we went to look for this other place that had been really highly recommended. And when we went to look for it, they had a sign on the door saying they were closed because they were appearing at the vegan food festival. Oh, so we ooh. ended up at the vegan food festival instead. And it was uh, pretty darn incredible. The food on display was just uh, out of control. I, I, I'm sure I gained uh, several pounds just on that day. Uh, it was just incredible. Every type of dessert you can imagine, ice creams, burgers, all kinds of other foods, tacos, had some tacos that were good. Um, yeah, just fantastic. So that was great. That was a great part of uh, the Riga experience. Wow, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. That's cool. But I that was good. But, and, I, but I feel sorry. like you, you also have more food stories for us. I have a little bit more food stories. I promised, I believe, on two episodes ago that for the first time, Camille, in 30 years, I actually went to a McDonald's. <laughs> this was the new thing for me. I decided, yes, we're going to go to McDonald's. And for those of you wondering why I would ever do that, it's because McDonald's is one of like I think it's three countries in the world right now. There's not many, right? It's it, the Scandinavian countries, I think Finland and Sweden and Germany. Germany is where McDonald's has decided to roll out its test market for a new vegan burger that I'm certain will be coming to North America very soon. So it's called Big Vegan. And I took my son and daughter to McDonald's, which was, you know, surprisingly poignant. It was because I had done it as a kid, obviously. So my parents took me to McDonald's. That was still a big deal when I was growing up. And uh, I have obviously never taken my kids to McDonald's. But uh, I decided if they have a vegan burger, I'm going to go to McDonald's. So we went and we tried the big vegan. Wow. And what's the verdict? How was it? So here's the thing, Camille. You and I have done this before. We've talked about this before. To me, the biggest failure with all of the vegan offerings in the fast food markets, and this includes A&W, it includes very strongly the Tim Hortons breakfast sandwich, which I've heard a lot of complaints about, is the fact that they fail to realize when they're making a vegan concoction that you need to provide the same degree of mixture of food texture and taste that non that, that non-plant eaters want, so or plant eaters want. So if I'm a vegan, the thing that makes vegan restaurants so special is that they mirror the food that is being provided in other venues, and they do it in a way that's designed to appeal to everybody. But what I find is happening with these vegan offerings at a lot of these restaurants, it's like they need a vegan consultant, Camille, because 
they've essentially created a Big Mac, but taken all the sauces away and all the cheese away. So as a result, I actually thought the burger was great. And the reason I thought it was great, Camille, because I brought my own sauce. Like I brought Veginese from home and, you know, you added ketchup and mustard and it was a really good burger. I actually like the Impossible Burger that they use. I find it actually has a slightly smokier, meatier flavor than the Beyond Burger. And frankly, what I also like, Camille, is that it's full size. That A&W mini burger is just, it just annoys me. In yeah. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a three quarter size. Oh, that's interesting. I did not realize that they were using Impossible Burger. I thought it was like a house brand McVegan style thing that they developed. So that's good. Impossible Burgers are delicious. Sorry, I, I get them mixed up, Camille, sometimes. I actually think it's called the Incredible Burger. And I think it's based through Garden Gourmet. It's, it's a third challenger. Oh. Because when I, was in, when I was in Germany, I was actually able to get Garden Gourmet Incredible Burgers, they're called. And I was able to get them in the stores. And we ate them many times. And to be honest, they were delicious. Um, I did just have a slightly different flavor. But the texture is very similar to Beyond Burger. Okay, okay. Didn't know that. Didn't know that. Uh, we forget about all the European things sometimes. Everyone's so focused on North America, but well, that's cool. Well, I went through, I think I won't repeat the whole thing I went through last time about, you know, my, my Icelandic skier yogurt, which is like the, the most fantastic thing you can't get. Uh, you know, we, we went through that on the last podcast. But um, yeah, so the, the, it was, you know, it was amazing because I haven't been to McDonald's in 30 years. So you go in there and it's like, it's vaguely familiar because they keep aspects of the design and style in fact, but it's highly, highly computerized. Like you order your, your computer on this like massive like iPad thing that's like 600 feet high. No, it's not actually 600 feet, by the way. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> sorry, that's my uh, hyperbolizing, but it's big. And and my kids really loved it. And, and the experience was good. It was quick. I mean, the fries were terrible because they're McDonald's fries. Like, I don't really think they're particularly good. But I will say something, Camille. The apple pie was a huge hit, actually. I've forgotten about the apple pie. Like that McDonald's apple pie, which is vegan, has always, has always been vegan, um, is like surprisingly good. And my kids like loved it. So oh. I don't know. Okay. So overall kind have of you, not have you a had bad... an apple pie recently? Not from McDonald's. Um, I actually didn't know that their apple pie was vegan. That's news to me and welcome news. Yeah, it is. I checked it before going. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. So anyway, um, it was all good. Um, I, I'm really pleased that I did it and that I went, you know, I wouldn't go on a daily basis, nor do I go to the A&W on a daily basis, but it was, it was definitely, um, the thing about McDonald's obviously is when the McVegan comes online around the world, like that'll be really useful, right? In a few places, like they're still there. And, and I'm, and by the way, Camille, I'm not talking like, you know, a few places like some foreign country, I'm talking like Canada. Right. Where there are like several places where we might visit. In fact, you and I visited the Northwest Territories and like fast food is like really all there is. And sometimes having those vegan options is really good. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So, uh, yes, so that was the, the main part of my eating part of my trip. We finished off the tri trip with a crazy European heat wave, which was absolutely brutal. It was, uh, it hit 40 degrees, um, on the th one of the Thursdays I was there and, and Germans don't believe in air conditioning. So essentially you're just left to bask in the heat for three or four days. And it was really, uh, it wasn't that much fun for me or my family. Um, but it also wasn't much fun for the animals in transport. Yeah. That's always who and, I think uh, of when heat waves, heat waves come on and it was pretty hot here in Canada, at least in Ottawa while you were gone too. And it's, it's hard not to think of those pigs suffering, the chicken suffering, and, and actually dying as well. 
Well, I mean, I I live in a small area. It's a rural area. Sorry, I don't live. Uh, my 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 wife's family, where we stay, lives in a small rural area. And like in the third day of the heat wave, we picked up the local newspaper and read about an event that took place literally a couple of miles away from where we were, where a driver, a French driver who was trucking pigs through to a German slaughterhouse, was stopped. And uh, when investigators looked in the vehicle, they measured the inside temperature at 41 degrees. Wow. Like, and yeah, three of the pigs had died from heat stress. Wow. And it was just like, and the rest were in terrible conditions. And again, it just reminded me of this transport issue. Obviously, you know, by the way, and let me just say, in a certain way, this is a positive story, right? And the fact that he was stopped, right? There was an investigation. Like, that's good, right? I mean... I don't see that happening every day in Canada, but it's it's good to see that they're actually monitoring some of this, though I can only guess that so many more were involved in this sort of heat stress. And, and, and the point I really wanted to make is this. What I learned when we were doing the transport case a long time ago, if you remember the case of Maple Lodge Farms, which I'm sure you do, um, what, what, what struck me when I was reading Maple Lodge is the same thing that struck me with this heat wave. The idea that transport of animals is built around certain functional parameters. And one of those parameters is weather. And essentially what happens is they devise systems that work the majority of the time. Let's assume they work, right? But they work the majority of the time. And then suddenly there comes along a situation in which the heat goes out of control, or in Canada, the cold goes out of control. And suddenly the, the systems that they have that involve mostly use of ventilation just don't work anymore. And guess what? They transport anyway. And they transport anyway because, frankly, on the production line system that they're on, they kind of have no choice. And they sort of know that. It's like there are built-in situations in which they will transport and suffering will occur. And that's just sort of the way it is. And it, they just say, that's, that's the way absolutely it, is. it. I mean, the slaughterhouses are designed to process animals pretty much 24-7. Some of them work overnight. Some of them shut down at 5 p.m. or in the evenings. But they accept shipments of animals pretty much all day long. And if they're not receiving shipments, they're not making money. And on the other side of things, farms who grow birds, for instance, so if you're raising chickens to be slaughtered for meat, they're ready to be shipped to transport to slaughter after, well, typically 45 days. And uh, if they're kept on the farm any longer, the farmers are losing money, the slaughterhouses are losing money, the transporters are losing money. They're all losing money. And no one's willing to take a financial hit, even if it's just uh, very, very bad and damaging and deadly for animals to be transported in those conditions. Yeah, exactly. And it's, 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 it's really, it's a really frustrating reminder. You know, you always see these events take place. First of all, we know that heat waves of these sort are going to happen more and more, and we're going to have more extreme weather events. And again, most of this is just, it's not built into the process. Like the process cannot handle things that frankly are regular events. And that's a very, that was a really frustrating uh, reminder to me when I heard about this pig story right, right near my front door, quite really. Frankly. Yeah, that's frustrating indeed. Well, we, we I guess we have a bit of a theme to the show today because as we get into mm. the main segment, we're Heat. going to be talking about dogs in hot cars as well and, and the legal situation for them. But yeah, at, at this time of year, it's just hard not to remember the animals who are suffering because of the heat. Absolutely. So, there we are. So a couple announcements. We are now on SoundCloud. So if you want to listen to us on SoundCloud, you can. Are you excited? I'm 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 so excited, Camille. I've really 
Yeah. Um, I just need someone to tell me what SoundCloud is, and then I'll be even more excited. It's like a website with music and audio stuff. So yeah, it's oh, good. Fantastic. I'm so excited. Well, I'm even more excited, Camille, about our Patreon page. And we talked about this last day. We have gotten some new Patreons, two new Patreons, Trev and Graham. And thank you so much for your support. We are now up to $145 per month. I'm telling all of you out there. You can help us reach our $200 goal. We have not set a deadline for that goal, Camille. We really should. Um, because I'd like to get to $200 a month. And you can help us do that by doing patreon.com backslash pawn order. We have sponsor levels of all kinds. Camille, I really want to talk with you. This is on camera, but like, well, no camera, but on radio and on microphone and we'll do it off. I think we need to bump up the prizes, like the things that we are giving our patrons. Like I, I want to bump them up somehow and, and, and give them more stuff if they, are you going to pay a personal us. visit to our patrons? Oh yeah. I'll bring them a big <laughs> vegan. I'll <laughs> hand deliver big vegans from Germany. Um, we're going to come up with something. I mean, especially if we can get some bigger Patreons, like we'll come up with some, something that's like really special content for you. Cause uh, we're very excited about the Patreon page and we love all our supporters and, and we want to find a way to reward them properly. So we're still working on it, Camille. Yeah. And I, I've got to say the Patreon page today has been hugely helpful. We now have a professional podcast editor, which makes life a lot easier for the rest of the staff animal justice so it makes a difference when you join us and if we get to do 100 we can we can afford all of our editing costs so that would be amazing uh, unbelievable yeah another reminder that you can leave us a review if you love paw and order because it helps people find the podcast and we actually Camille, you know how many reviews by the way do you know, i sorry to interrupt you because i didn't want you to go into this next thing do you know do you know how many reviews we have right now on itunes i, I haven't looked how many 99 wow so, like, can we get over 100, please? <laughs> we need one more review. Let's, let's hope so, by next episode we'll have well over 100. Thanks to all you You supporters. out there listening, come on. We need one more review to get us over 100 reviews on iTunes. Yes. Well, here's something cool. We Apparently in Canada, we can't see reviews from maybe all other countries, but definitely the States. And our producer, Shannon Milling, just figured out how to see reviews from the States, and we found a few reviews there. So uh, there was one from someone who goes by the name Glitter and Despair from the United States, and I'm just going to read that one. They say, to begin, I'd just Love like it. to say that people such as Ms. Labchuk and Mr. Sankoff are clearly what vital to the cause of animal rights progress. Their tireless, pragmatic dedication to the cause, working in litigation trenches, is likely one of the primary ways we will see any positive change on these fronts in the near future. I'm just skipping a bit because it's quite long. They say the podcast is enlightening, educational, and ent entertaining as well. The do is always a pleasure to listen to, and I always come away more informed on these issues after one of the shows. And because of the legal slant, it can be somewhat technical, but it's presented in a way that people like myself can at least understand and learn from. And, and I want to read one other part that Camille left out, which is my favorite part of the whole thing. Here's, here's what Glitter and Despair also says. The banter between the hosts can be amusing and has a casual ease about it. Mr. Sankoff seems to delight in some soft trolling of Miss Labchuk at times, though the latter rarely, if ever, takes the bait and proceeds completely unfazed by anything of this nature. Well, I let me say, first of all... I learned to ignore you. <laughs> 
first of all, glitter and despair, you really get me. Thank you. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly. <laughs> Soft trolling is probably about the best way to describe what I've been trying brand, to do to Camille. Theater. Soft trolling. It's kind of my brand. Though, though, I don't know. I think she's phased occasionally, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Every once in a while, I phase her with something, but I'll keep working on it. I promise you. Try, Thanks try so much harder. for the awesome review. Thanks so much for the awesome review. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the review. Thanks for everyone who's left reviews. Uh, if you haven't yet, do one because it bumps up our ratings. And uh, we're going to move on to the in the news segment quick uh, before too long. But just quickly before we do that, an ad from our sponsor, The Grinning Goat. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique. They have a storefront on 17th Avenue Southwest in Calgary, but they ship across the country via grinninggoat.ca. And you will just be amazed by their footwear selection. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's not quite August yet, but I'm already thinking about fall clothing and fall vegan fashion. So if you want to go check out their boot offerings for the fall, you can do that. And uh, they ship across the country. You'll also get 15% off at checkout if you use the discount code PAW15. So check these guys out. Fantastic. They're an amazing vegan fashion store and we love them. Absolutely. Okay, so lots of in, lots in the news as usual. Let's start with a case in Canada, Toronto, actually. So we've spoken about this one before, but it's a it's a case filed on behalf of mice killed in cruel glue traps. Um, so a lawyer, retired lawyer, Sandra Schnur, who's been a friend and supporter of animal justice for a long time. Sandra is bringing this case to court and going after several retailers that sell these cruel devices. So glue traps, if you're not already aware of what they are, they're incredibly cruel. They're a glue panel that goes on the floor essentially and mice other rodents insects can be caught in them and die a slow and agonizing death sometimes even chewing off their own limbs to escape just horrific and Mishner is arguing that these traps uh violate criminal and provincial animal cruelty laws so she was in court the other week making those arguments and trying to speak on behalf of animals uh, we've spoken about the case before, Peter, and it's got some legal challenges because of mm. doctrines about how animal cases can get to court. So we'll be watching it mm. closely. Yeah, it's interesting. The, the standing issue is getting it's, it's it's I think when we talked about it last time, I always felt the challenge in this case or one of the biggest challenges was the nexus issue of trying to get it, it, it's it's the, the worry that the arguments being run in the wrong place if that makes any sense. Like she's going after the retailers when really she wants to be going after the government. Um, and the standing issue is sort of all wrapped up in this. And this is very, it's interesting because it's similar to what happened in the uh, the Lucy uh, case, the, the second Lucy case that recently came down to the Supreme Court. In that the standing issue is actually separate from the nexus issue, if that makes any sense. I actually think you can win the standing issue but still lose the nexus issue. But the problem is that in deciding the standing issue, one of the criteria is the likelihood of success and the merits of the action. And I think that's what worried me so much in the Edmonton Zoo case, because what they said was, well, the majority of the court said, well, whether or not you have standing in terms of whether you're the appropriate person to bring the case or whether or not you're the um, um, this is the type of case where we should hear on behalf of an animal. They look at the merits of the case as well. And that all gets wrapped up into the standing question. And that bothers me a little bit, because in this case, for example, 
I have no problem with having an appropriate person come forward and argue in effect on behalf of mice. That's that's a that's a good idea. And I also have no problem with suggesting that we need to look at novel ways of advancing actions, which was actually the issue in the first Lucy case when they tried to argue that they should be able to get a declaration to force the government to enforce its own laws. But what worries me about this case is that in deciding about standing, Justice Sawson is also going to look at the nature of the action that's been filed. And that's what worries me here, is that the nature of the action is not really trying to get the government to move its ass. It's really trying to go directly after the retailers. And I'm a little bit concerned that that's legally a bridge too far. It may well be. And I think I think you've correctly identified the problem. Standing on behalf of animals isn't actually that challenging in Canada as a, a matter of law. It's it's occurred. Uh, public interest standing has occurred by organizations and individuals who seek standing to bring animal related claims to court. So that's not a huge problem in and of itself, although it can be in some situations. So, yeah, the case has yeah, challenges. And, and- What worries me a little bit is that these things get wrapped up together. And and that's what I've never liked, what I didn't like about the second Lucy decision, if you remember, is that they were really trying to decide the merits of the case within the context of the standing argument. And to me, the standing argument is separate from the merits of the case, because you need to be able to decide in what sorts of situation the person should be able to speak and litigate on behalf of animals. And and, and what worries me is that by by bringing in the merits of the case, and, and again, this is what Justice O'Farrell said in dissent, you're essentially prejudging the claim at an early stage. And that's what I don't like. That's what worries me about these standing cases. And also that what worries me is if they keep losing these standing cases, they may lose the glue trap case as well. It starts to promote the idea, and which I think is wrongful, but nonetheless promote the idea that uh, standing for animals is, is not something that the courts are going to allow. Yeah, that that is that is concerning. Uh, I will say one thing that's been really positive about this case so far is it has generated a lot of media interest. There have been articles in all the major newspapers talking about it. And I think reminding people that animals need advocates in court on their behalf is valuable on its own. So kudos to Sandra for, for accomplishing that. So Absolutely. Moving on to something out of the United States, and we're going to tie this back in to something in Canada. We're going to talk about the story out of, um, well, this is Arkansas. Uh, Arkansas is being sued by a bunch of animal-related and food-related and civil liberties groups in the states over laws that would impose massive fines for plant-based or cell-based meat products like veggie burgers or tofu dogs marketed or packaged using the term meat. Oh boy, where have we heard this before, Camille? (laughs) No, completely novel. Like everywhere. Yeah. yeah, we've heard this everywhere before. Yeah. yeah, it's essentially industry protectionism. The meat and dairy industries are very concerned about the rise of the plant-based food industries, and they're doing everything they can to circle the wagons. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's we've talked about these cases before. I'm very thrilled to see this one going forward because, frankly, I think it sets some of the groundwork for the same sorts of challenges we want to run here. Uh, my view is very clear. Uh, if the government wants to somehow create these labeling laws that favor particular producers, I think the government should have to set out its justification rationale and explain very clearly why it believes such a regime is necessary. 
And to do that, it's going to have to make that case. It's going to have to provide evidence that consumers are actually being misled by terms like vegan meat or vegan milk or plant milk or soy milk. And I think that's going to be very challenging. I'm not aware of any polls that shows that anybody's being misled by these terms. Uh, consumers are smarter, I guess, than the meat industry and, and protectionist governments give them credit for. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting case. It's, it's arguing a violation of uh, free expression which is something like, that, that what's so annoying what what i like about the freedom of expression is like the burden of proof should be on the government you want to make these rules then explain like explain the rationale for how a burger is misleading or how the term uh the certain terms are misleading to consumers especially when it's not like anybody is trying to sell vegan cheese as cheese they're just not. They're trying to describe what the product actually is and nothing more. And I don't understand why CFIA has to get its nose into all this or any of these countries for any reason other than pure protectionism. Yeah, no, that's pretty much it. And that, that's a good segue into uh, a more local example of, of this doctrine. So Grow Your Roots Restaurant, one of my favorite vegan places here in Ottawa, owned by just a wonderful woman named Melanie. They were told they had to change their entire menu by the CFIA the other week. So the CFIA complained um, about a number of things on the menu. So they used terms like uh, cashew cheese or cheddar cheese. The menu says very clearly at the top, Peter, that everything is 100% vegan. Um, if you ever go to the restaurant, it's impossible to leave with any other impression because she has the sign out front saying 100% vegan. The, the term's no, plant-based. No one's going to be confused here. No one's confused. There, there's, there's no confusion. No, but the CFIA showed up and told Mel the other week that she has to change her menu. She can't use the word uh, burger to describe her veggie burger. And she's got to change all this other stuff too. And basically delete those terms or use terms like meat alternative or cheese alternative. And frankly, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for all the reasons we've just discussed. But it's also ridiculous because the CFIA has the most scattershot completely non-strategic enforcement approach to these issues that I've ever seen. Uh, pretty much every inspector <laughs> says something <Wow>. different. <laughs> Shocking, well, right? Camille, for you, that was, that was some strong language. That was like, that was good. I loved it. We got to get you riled up more often. Oh, I mean, the few, most, few the most scattershot. Wow. Okay. Few I should have just let that one sit. That was beautiful. Is the CFIA, to be honest. Uh, you know, this is the same agency that ignores every single time. Every single time animal justice files a complaint saying the word humane is improperly being used on uh, products of chickens that subject animals to abuse. The CFIA just ignores that. To my knowledge, they've never taken enforcement action on one of our humane claims, yet they show up and harass vegan food businesses at every chance they get. So, you know, this isn't wow. going to sta stand for very long. Uh, there's some work being done to address the situation. We'll say more about it when we can, but CFI is not going to get away with this for long. Go get them. Go get them. Yes. I love it. Love to hear that kind of excitement. Yeah. I mean, the whole, ugh, this issue is just like, it's so smelly. I, I would really like to see a good claim go forward. Let's just challenge these uh, regulations straight up. I mean, it just seems to me, and we don't even have to get standing Camille. Isn't that great? Yeah. Because we're not arguing on behalf of animals. We're arguing on behalf of us and restaurant owners and producers. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, it's a direct interest that's being infringed. Until then, Camille, I'm going to have a sip of my cashew beverage followed by some 
I, I can never really, I really have to put them out. Like, what are they? they burger is still allowed, though, isn't it? For the moment. Well, I thought Burger I mean, was still of, a fair game. Of course it is. The CFIA says something different every time they show up to a restaurant or a cheese oh, business. That's the problem. Right. They right, have no right, consistency. Right, right. They don't seem to understand the regulations themselves, and they just kind of like say whatever they feel at that particular moment. It seems. Sure, they come and threaten charges. Yeah. Never seen that before. No. Nope. Well, fantastic. I'm so proud of being a Canadian when I hear how the CFIA spends my tax dollars. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving right along, let's get some good news, Camille. We are going back to one of our older stories. I We have talked about this. We've talked about it for years. You have to go back in the archives. I can't find the exact show. We are talking about our friends in Australia and the ongoing issue with live sheep export in Australia. And one of the reasons we've continued to go back to the story over and over again um, is because, to me, Camille, this mirrors a lot of the discussion. I, I, I I won't go back again to all the discussion about, you know, about um, chuck wagon racing. But I will say this. Um, to me, this issue of live sheep export is one of those issues that is going to test the power of the animal welfare movement, which is why so many people are putting in so much time and energy in Australia to getting this process banned. And the reason why it's such a critical issue, you have to understand the way in which, again, this is within the context of the chuck wagon racing that we talked about last day. It's that question of risk. It's that question that live sheep export, if done in ideal conditions, might be able to set up a situation where suffering is minimal. Uh, unfortunately, ideal conditions don't exist. And as a result, time after time, year after year, animals are going to be harmed. Sounds familiar? Like, sounds like the chuck wagon race? Yeah, it sounds like a lot of animal abuse situations. Well, unfortunately, the question is, is the government ever just going to say no more in Australia? We are going to shut this down. And when that happens, we know we'll have a real victory. And we're not quite there yet. That battle is still ongoing. But at the very least, Camille, the latest development is that the, the investigation um, into the original complaint, the one we discussed way back in one of our very first episodes, I believe, we named the whistleblower on that ship a hero. Do you remember that, Camille? That's like yeah, way back in like episode two, three, or four. Yeah. I can't even remember when that was. But this was an event that took place in 2017. It broke early in 2018 to the national media. And we are pleased to report that the government has decided to lay charges against the uh, organization Emanuel Exports. Um, that was actually running these ships. So for one of the first times, we're actually going to see these matters tried in court or, or a guilty plea entered. Yeah, it's, it's very positive news. This has pretty much never happened. So it's groundbreaking and we're pretty happy about it. Yeah, it's good. It's it's definitely a step forward. I'm I'm. We will continue to monitor this live sheep export uh, issue because it really is in Australia. That is one of the issues that are really going to put the test to how effective can our animal welfare protections actually be? Because if we can't get this stopped, it's really hard to go after some of the other the other things. So a lot of time and effort is being put forward. And frankly, I hope Manual Export defends. Don't you? Because I'd love to see the trial. To me, the trial would be fantastic to really get this evidence out public um, get a recorded decision that would be great it would really be useful for moving things forward yeah i couldn't agree more all right back to canada we've got a story about marine land which often gets discussed on the show marine land recently called the police the niagara region police force because phil demers who's a former marine land trainer and became a whistleblower and is being sued by them for millions of dollars uh phil the other week decided to post on twitter Quote, life is short, steal a walrus. 
obviously a joke. So the, the gist is a joke. If you don't follow Phil and you're not aware of this, his Twitter handle is actually Walrus Whisperer because he has a relationship, very close friendship with a walrus at Marineland named Smooshy. Smooshy's actually the only surviving walrus at Marineland. A number of other walruses tragically have died there. Tragically, but not uh, surprisingly. And Phil has had a very special relationship with this walrus. Their relationship has been the subject of TV shows, even like American late night TV shows. And he, I think, would really like to see Smooshy get out of Marineland and go to a better place. So he put that tweet up. Um, obviously a joke because walruses weigh like, I think, a ton and a half, something like that. They're big. Um, I don't think I could carry a walrus. Probably you couldn't either. I don't think Phil could. So Marineland decided it would call the police anyway. And Phil posted a video of the police showing up and saying, yeah, Marineland, we're here because they expressed some concern over a tweet you sent. So <clears throat> as often happens with Marineland's... <laughs> this is pretty hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and as often happens with Marineland's... Um, I, I don't know if you could call it a media strategy. It doesn't seem very well thought out, but... They were attempting to silence Phil, but what ended up happening is the uh, the message was amplified. It became a, a national news story. He did tons of interviews. There were tons of articles, a great CBC piece. And, uh, you know, later he tweeted, life is short, steal an orca. Life is short, steal a roller coaster. So, haha. Hilarious. I mean, it's just so, anyway, there's not much more to say about it. It's so ludicrous, the whole idea. that, that, that The idea that the police actually responded to this. That's like, the worst thing to me, is that know, they showed up at his house. They're wasting police resources instead of investigating crimes. Again, like, the, 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 the difficulty of getting a police officer to actually look at animal cruelty matters, paralleled with, if you tweet something against Marine Land, someone's going to come to your door and investigate. Like, what is, what is the officer hoping to achieve? I couldn't tell I mean, you. I wonder what Phil did. I'm, I'm sure Phil was quite polite. If an officer came to my house to talk about a tweet, I'd be like... I have nothing to say to you. Like, goodbye. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah. are you going to do? Charge me over a tweet? Yeah. Yeah, good luck making that stick. No, it, oh, it's offensive that the police are being used as Marineland's private security force. Camille, we we should probably keep this quiet because we never know. Marineland could come after us. Yeah. I hear the police coming any minute now. Sankoff and Labchuk uh, re-emphasized this matter and were accessories in the Steel Smooshy campaign. They were mean to Marineland on the air. I confess, Camille, I'm very guilty. I'm, <laughs> I'm in Edmonton, but somehow I plan to steal a, what is it, a, a several ton walrus? <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. I'm put it in my bathtub and have a great time. It'll, 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 it'll be a, my kids have wanted a pet for a long time. I think Smooshy would just be ideal. Yeah. Yeah. It should be fine. <laughs> the whole thing is so ridiculous. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, our, our last story, which is like a real story, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. So a couple of Canadian uh, zoos have been named among the cruelest zoos in the world by our friends of World Animal Protection. And we're looking at you, African Lion Safari and Jungle Cat World. Uh, these are both in Ontario, and the reason that they're named among the cruelest zoos is that they engage in abusive uh, training. I shouldn't say necessarily abusive, but they engage in training, which is often abusive. And you can um, infer from that that there's 
potentially problematic training methods being used, but the cats at Jungle Cat World are forced to perform tricks, and the lions at African Lion Safari, um, sorry, the elephants for sure, I don't know about the lions, probably other animals, but are, are forced to give tourists rides. Um, that was apparently suspended after an elephant seriously injured a trainer just about a month ago. So uh, don't go to these places, please, if you're listening. Probably you don't go to zoos already if you're listening to this podcast, but give these ones some extra boycotting. So we've talked about this so far. We've talked about the issue of zoos before, and we've talked about the way in which zoos are defined and all that. And frankly, if it were up to me, um, I think the way I actually think, you know, believe it or not, Camille, I've had this thought before just coming on and springing it on the podcast, but I actually think I would like to see a campaign begun, a legal campaign, as well as a political campaign run on let's get rid of every private zoo. And I realize that zoos are like, and I realize, but we've talked on the past, I think there still is a distinction between the city zoos that are at least under a government control. I don't like them. I don't want any zoos. We've had that talk. But to me, every time I've heard about private zoos, they're hell. Like the private zoos are brutal. Like, you know, the, the, there's no surprise that the SPCA raid out of Montreal, private zoo. Gazoo in Alberta shut down a couple of years ago, private zoo. Like these private zoos are under much less scrutiny than the municipal public zoos. And I think as a very, again, this to me is part of the cascading animal law effect. Like you can't, you can't shut down the city zoos when you've got these rogue crazy zoos that are two of the cruelest in the world that continue to operate. And it seems to me, as a matter of politics, it might be much more easily sellable if you're just trying to shut down the private ones and you're not trying to go after, say, the Toronto Zoo, which might be a bridge too far at this point in time. Yeah, shut down the private ones and transition the public ones to a sanctuary model where the animals' interests are put first and they're not simply there to be on display for tourists. I mean, I agree with that, but, but, but politically, I wouldn't even push the second limb right away. It seems to me that the private zoos are so bad and so problematic, and there's such a much stronger case to get rid of them. Because, I, frankly, I, I mean, I don't even know. I, I, I Honestly, I haven't studied enough to know whether they even qualify. Are they accredited under the CASA, ridiculous CASA standards? Like, do you Some know of if them these are. zoos here qualify? Yeah, yeah. Many, many of them are. Some of them are. Um, a lot aren't. You know, Papanak yeah. Zoo, which Animal Justice exposed some undercover footage from about two years ago. Very disturbing stuff. Definitely not accredited. I don't know about Jungle right. Cat World and African Lion Safari. I, I believe they are actually at least accredited by some global body. But, you know, the whole idea of accreditation yeah, just, is another it, discussion. We should maybe do a zoo episode sometime because there's a lot we, to we get should, into. We really should. Yeah, we've got to do a zoo episode. But I mean, my, my gut tells me and I do things mostly by my gut, um, that going after every zoo is going to be, it's, it's, it's almost like you're lumping them together. And I think that's the problem is that you're going to, it's, it's, it's very challenging to say, we're going to shut down every zoo. Um, however, if you say, well, we want to shut down all the private zoos, it seems to me there's, there's a much more sellable case there. You're essentially Plus, it would give the government a freaking opportunity to go after all regulation of exotic animals, like entirely. And I think you try and shut down on that basis. Um, anyway, I, I haven't done a study to know how many private zoos there are in this country, but I know the number is higher than I'm comfortable with. Yeah, there's a lot. They're mostly in Ontario because Ontario is the only province really without any sort of zoo licensing regime. So roadside zoos I, have proliferated. I'm not proliferated. sure. I think there's still, there's still some in uh, Alberta. Oh, there, there are down, some. But I know there's a couple. There yeah. are some, but most of them are in Ontario. 
Right, well, every time I've heard about one of these private zoos, again, the public zoos are no paradise, so let's, let's be clear. But uh, I have better faith in the public zoos to do a better job in terms of the day-to-day -day handling of the animals, let's put it that way, than I do the private zoos. Is that enough of a qualification? Because, <laughs> sure. like, again, that's, that's the qualification I have. I don't think public zoos are any better. I could, I could go to a public zoo and find 50 things that would absolutely drive me crazy, as well as, of course, the underlying theory that we're exhibiting animals for profit, right? There, there you go. But the private zoos do everything they do and worse. And then you have all the handling problems and all the storage issues and all the cleanliness. Like, you get, you get multiple problems at the private zoos that don't seem to exist at the public zoos, probably because the public zoos are under greater scrutiny. That's just my guess, but I don't know. Yeah, no, that does make sense. I mean, you can you can do access to or freedom of information requests for vet records at the Toronto Zoo, for instance, and other public mm, zoos Edmonton in a way Zoo that too. you can't. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God, I hate private zoos. That's got to be something we go after one of these days. All right. Well, that'll be enough to uh, 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 for now, but but definitely something we want to look into and more in future. You're right. A future episode on zoos would be a great idea. All right, we're going to get into our uh, main topic right now, and our topic is dogs and hot cars. This is an issue that comes up every summer, and we are going to look at what the law is surrounding dogs and hot cars. How does the law address this issue? How does it address uh, your liability if you choose to try and rescue this dog. Camille, what can you tell us about dogs and hot cars? Well, unfortunately, it always is a problem this time of year, and it doesn't seem to matter how many PSAs go out from SPCAs or cities or police or animal groups. People keep leaving their dogs in cars. And I think some of it might be due to misperceptions about how dangerous this actually is. It's, it's very dangerous. Even if it's only in you know the low 20 degrees outside, the heat in a car can get up to lethal levels very quickly, just within a matter of minutes. And uh, this applies even if your car is parked in the shade and even if the windows are cracked open. Dogs are pretty susceptible to, to heat stroke. They can sustain very serious ill effects within only minutes and can also die very quickly. So, Peter, one problem that dogs have compared to us is that they don't sweat. They can't sweat to expel heat like we can. So that makes them especially vulnerable to heat stroke. Uh, they do pant, but that only gets them so far. So, Peter, some cities in Canada have tried to address the issue with bylaws to say that you can't leave a dog in, or other animal in a hot car. And that's great. Uh, Vancouver has this for sure. Uh, many other jurisdictions do. It, I, I don't have an entire list. Uh, and it's also easy enough to prosecute someone for leaving a dog in a hot car by relying on either the criminal code, animal cruelty laws, or provincial animal welfare laws. So under the by criminal the way, code... I actually think it's really hard under the criminal code, and I'll tell you why in a second. Well, yeah, no, ahead. I shouldn't yeah. say it's easy. It's possible. But what you yeah. have to prove is that the animal is suffering or has suffered. Well, but pain you've or... also got to show willful, willful negligence. That's, it's, and willful is really hard in that situation. It's just like it will, this, is, this is the problem with our criminal law that we've gone on about many, many times before. But in a situation where you leave a dog in a hot car, proving intentional suffering is going to be... I think impossible. That's a very, very hard case to make. But even showing willful negligence is really, really hard just because of the willfulness. Like if you have some guy, all he has to say and be credibly believed is the idea that I, I thought it, I didn't think it was going to get that hot. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's sure. Like, and, uh, and this goes back to the 
bigger problems with our criminal code neglect sections and why the terms exactly willful and neglect are exactly the opposite it's, of each other, but have to be considered yeah. together in the mental element for that offense. So that's a problem. It's just crazy because essentially the less you know about dogs, the less likely it is you can be charged. It's the guy who knows. That's the guy who's going to be, be found guilty. But most of the time, that's not going to happen. So I actually think the criminal code is really hard to use in this situation. I do think you're much more likely to be charged under provincial animal welfare laws. Yeah, and those actually make it, uh, yeah, as you say, much, much less difficult to prove. So you would have to show distress, perhaps, um, or even mm -hmm. just a failure to provide appropriate water or shelter or protection from the elements, depending on the province. All the provinces state these obligations that people have for animals a little bit differently. Um, but generally, yeah. there's an obligation to provide appropriate shelter or, or water or protection from the elements. So you could prosecute and of course that your, way. Your, your, your mental state doesn't matter under these provincial provisions. And I think that's what's useful. And, and I should say again that it, this is what's unfortunate about this is that the offense doesn't, whether you can be prosecuted criminally or provincially has nothing to do with how severe your departure from the norm is, which is what I think it should be based on. And uh, the issue of, you know what I mean, how hot it was on the particular day. Did the animal actually die? Like these are things that should transform into criminal acts at a certain point. But the criminal code, the way it's set up, unless we get some much needed reform. Uh oh, <laughs> how do we do that, Camille? <laughs> Yeah, that, that's really what we need. But nonetheless, there's no question that keeping your dog in a hot car seems to me to be a pretty open and shut case of uh, distress in many cases. Definitely, definitely. So anyone who does this risks prosecution. So what about you? You're probably not someone who's going to leave your dog in a hot car. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably someone who's more likely to try to rescue a dog from a hot car. And uh, you can't find them, right? You can't find you can't find the owner. They've gone into a shop somewhere. You don't know where they are, but you see the dog. Yeah. What do you do? So what do you do? What do you do? And what are the various legal liabilities that you uh, potentially incur depending on what you do? So SPCA's Humane Society's police, they have the authority to rescue animals from these situations. So an easy thing to do is to call those folks, call them, tell them about the vehicle, tell them where it is, provide as much detailed information as you can, including a license plate number, photos of it, uh, the address where it is located, stay with the vehicle until they arrive. That is a good option because these people have the authority to rescue the dogs. So if they break a window, they're not going to incur any civil liability and they're not gonna be charged for doing that because it's part of their duties. So that's a good situation. But uh, what if you're in a remote area and there's nobody around? And as we've talked about, you know that dogs can suffer serious damage and potentially death within a matter of minutes. What if you just don't yeah. have confidence that the authorities are going to show up? This is another situation where it's just so, you know, because dogs are not the only things left in cars. We've seen a recent case uh, out of the U.S. where kids get left in cars too. It's the same oh, yeah. thing, right? And the heat heats up and maybe because of the, the, the biological differences, you need more heat for the whatever. But, but at the end of the day, the, the law treats this as two completely different situations. You're much less likely to face any form of, of problem if it's kids you're rescuing. And that's just simply a value judgment the law makes about the value of kids over uh, animals. Because yeah. the truth is that you do not have legal authority to rescue an animal from a situation of distress. As far as I can tell, that does not exist as a matter of law in any province that I'm aware of. No, I'm not aware of any province or, or even any city that's tried to include something like that. And 
It's interesting because in the States, a number of states actually explicitly give citizens the authority to break uh, windows to rescue dogs at risk. Uh, usually they have to have a good faith belief that they're definitely at risk and um, it would typically be protection from civil liability so that the owner can't sue for damages from uh, a broken window. So that's a difference between what we have in Canada and what there is in the States. Um, but if you're if you're in this country and you decide that you're going to break a window to rescue a dog, uh, the owner could sue you for the damages incurred to their vehicle. That is possible. Uh, you could also be charged criminally with mischief. So that would be the most likely charge in that situation that involves damaging the property of another person. Now, there's another question about whether prosecutors or police would actually take such a criminal case. I don't know what you think. I would personally be a little bit surprised if it was a legitimate oh. dog in a hot car life or death situation and the prosecutor decided to pursue that because there's a pretty strong argument that it wouldn't be in the public interest so when if it ever does happen you'd be sure to call us immediately please because this is a case that i would love to take and the reason i want to take it is because i do think there is the possibility of developing a defense here and this brings to mind um you know the case that we've we, we dealt with many years ago, the Anita Krines case. And in that case, uh, Ms. Krines tried to develop a very specific defense to deal with situations of this nature. If you remember, she was giving pigs water. And she suggested that even if her conduct was criminal, and for those of you who remember, it was decided that her conduct was not criminal, um, she had a, what was called a public good defense in that she was acting in the public good. And for that reason, she could not be convicted. And let's just say the judge was not impressed with the submission and kind of crapped all over it, I believe, would be the uh, legal vernacular, Camille. Yeah, he didn't have any time for it and certainly didn't accept it. No, and, and, and without, you know, directly criticizing the, the avenue taken by the lawyers in that case, I actually think there is still room to develop a defense of that nature, but in a much narrower setting. I don't think that the problem with the public good defense was that the judge, I think, perceived that the defense was too broad. It was too, it was too easy to define situations in which a person would think they were acting in the public good. And to have to weigh that on a case-by-case -case basis was problematic. But we already have a defense in Canadian law. It's called the necessity defense. And the necessity defense is why I suggested that it was if there were kids in the backseat, you would easily be getting away with breaking the window. No problem. You'd never be charged criminally because you would be saving the lives or, or reducing the potential for pain and injury to occur to these two kids. And the necessity defense is a very difficult defense to establish, but the reason why you can't use it for animals is simply because animal life under the necessity defense has never been considered as a valuable enough commodity to warrant raising a new defense of this type. But I actually think in these circumstances, that's one of those areas where you could get a subtle evolution of the law, where you could subtly push to say, look, we're not asking for you to create this whole new defense that applies in any scenario. We're just asking you to recognize that animal life matters. And frankly, we've got lots of cases that say that much. So I think to, to, to shift the applicability of the necessity defense is the kind of gradual evolution in the common law that I'd like to see happen. And I think this situation with a dog in a hot car is the perfect situation to ground it. Yeah, I think so, too. I think so, too. And there's a lot of sociological evidence about the way people feel about their pets. If we're talking about a dog in a hot car here, 
Uh, we're talking about a pet mm. and the way people feel about other animals who are considered companion animals. And people generally agree on the importance of protecting them. So, you know, a dog would be an ideal situation if, if somebody were charged for such a circumstance. Absolutely. And, and to me, that's, again, another, another perfect idea of, of getting the common law to evolve. And for any law students who are listening out there, this has been a topic that's been on my, um, you know, the one million articles I'd like to write but never have the time to write. Um, it's been on my radar. Like the ability to expand the necessity of defense to situations of animal rescue is one that really needs to happen. Like we need, right now, anybody who's trying to rescue an animal in any situation where that animal is in a seriously problematic state runs the risk of criminal charges whenever they do so. And I think it's, it's absolutely essential for us to be thinking forward. And uh, um, an expansion or a modification or whatever you want to call it of the legal necessity defense to apply to animals would be a really smart way to advance the law in a way that I, I don't think... Um, necessarily is going to raise the hackles of the Bob Sopucks of the world uh, or other politicians, per se. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. It's it's pretty narrow and confined to this particular situation. So one of those kind of reasonable changes that the common law is is prone to accepting. From time to time. Yeah. In any event, I mean, that's 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 really what we're looking at when we're looking at these car situations right now. Technically, if you choose to do this, you are taking the law into your own hands. It's a very difficult situation. And, and I think most people would do that in the, in the right set of circumstances. And yet, nonetheless, the law is not on your side as it's currently crafted in Canada. No, no, not yet. But sometimes you just need the right test case to to make that change, either through the common law or through a statute. Could happen either way. It's, and, it would be. And the good news is, Camille, we don't, the, this is one of those situations where, I mean, I, I suppose depending on how you look at it, it's good news. We'd bemoan the fact that their failure to prosecute in other situations doesn't advance the law. Well, in this case, it would be the opposite. It would be essentially we just need someone to get prosecuted and then we get to be the defense in that circumstance and can actually advance some of these issues. Right, right. <laughs> get the right lawyer. Well, if anyone out one. there hears about a case that we might be interested in, drop us a note. Absolutely. All right, Peter, is it time for everyone's favorite segment? Heroes and Zeros. It is time for everyone's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, do you want to fill heroes us in on the, the hero today since it's in your neck of the woods? Sure. This is a story which is uh, just tailor-made to be a zero story, and in many ways it is a zero story, and we could easily throw the zero to the uh, perpetrator of the heinous acts I'm about to describe in this case, Miss Gloria Sears, but I want to use this as a hero story. Um, this is a situation recently, very recently, just yesterday in Edmonton, where an Edmonton woman is facing multiple charges of abuse after an alleged puppy mill was found in northeast Edmonton. And obviously it's a terrible thing. This woman was selling... Uh, animals online. By the way, talk about issue for a future show, Camille. Yeah, seriously. Selling animals for twelve hundred, between twelve hundred to twenty-four hundred dollars, and uh, um, after uh, being alerted by uh, some people who went to the property to purchase dogs and seeing that everything was not uh, as kosher as they'd like it to be, uh, the police, in combination with animal care and control, went and eventually arrested the woman and seized uh, many of the animals uh, in question. And I think that's an absolutely amazing thing. And the reason I make this a hero story is that this really, the hero in this case is my opinion is the Edmonton police and I, I say that because 
This is a kind of story that, you know, years ago would have been dealt with by the Edmonton Humane Society, maybe dealt with well, maybe not dealt with well. And that was part of the problem of having your organi- your, your prosecutions and investigations run by a Humane Society if it had the money and the time to deal with it. But this was a serious situation. And the reason I'm throwing the heroes to the Edmonton police is because the Edmonton police took it seriously. They, they, you read through this story and you can see that it was a proper investigation done. First of all, by the way, can I also throw a shout out? Not that I love people buying puppies online on Kijiji, for God's sake, don't buy your puppies don't online from Kijiji. But at the very least, the people who were doing this on Kijiji had the good sense enough to realize that this woman was a problem and reported her. And, and, and that report was then taken by Animal Care and Control, who has replaced the Edmonton Humane Society, and goddammit, they contacted the police, recognizing this was a big deal. It was a large-scale operation. And the police went in and didn't waste time. They went in, they took, they, 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 they took down the puppy mill, they seized the animals, and guess what? Look at this, Camille, something I never see. They've actually, like, they've put out a request to find more evidence. They want to speak with any customers who may have visited the property. Like they want to get as much evidence as possible so they can be sure to secure a conviction. That's what a good investigative agency does. And that's why I want to give the hero to the Edmonton Police Department for doing the right thing, for treating this as a serious matter. And it's amazing that we have to say that in this day and age. Like, you know, like they treated an animal cruelty matter as a serious thing, but they did. And I think we're all better off for it here in Edmonton. Yeah, I I think those those are really important comments and i'll just add a couple things uh yeah it's a serious investigation that they're conducting obviously and it's it's really you might assume listening to this you might assume that police just take cruelty cases seriously they almost never they do. don't they do not they do not <laughs> it's the opposite i can yeah. tell you just two examples in the last week in in the toronto region where they haven't so one example of a, a dog watcher walker in the east end of toronto in the beaches neighborhood who was filmed abusing dogs and that became a news story because the police weren't uh, taking it seriously. In the, the province's new animal cruelty hotline, no one would follow up and, and let people know what was going on. Uh, and then just yesterday, another situation came up where someone was, was posting on Facebook horrible video of this just absolutely neglectful, feces-filled barn uh, somewhere north of Toronto full of animals. And the police had been called, the cruelty hotline had been called, and it was like pulling teeth to get anyone to do anything. So that's not the norm. And the police really do deserve credit for taking this seriously and, and just doing their jobs right. Here, here. All right. And for every hero, this is zero. We are back to giving up. Oh, no. A politician, the zero this week, Andrew Scheer, Conservative Party leader, for his frankly just nonsensical comments about the Canada Food Guide. So Mr. Scheer was speaking at the Dairy Farmers of Canada convention in Saskatchewan a few weeks ago. And Peter, you know what he said to them? He said that... Oh, I can only guess. Well, first he said that chocolate milk saved his son's life. That's yeah, I read that just part. Kind of that was funny. Comical on its own. He said his son wouldn't eat anything when he was quite young, and he said his son would eat bacon and chocolate milk. So you know, I I hope his son's diet has improved since then. Uh, but the other thing he said, <laughs> my son, my son, my son, for like a couple of weeks would only eat crackers. I don't remember. Like he was just eat almost nothing. And it's like you know what. Like, be a parent, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of hard work to get your kids, like, to eat stuff they don't want to eat. I'm telling you, if, my, if it were up to my son, he would just eat candy all day. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't leave kids to their own devices on this one. And you certainly shouldn't base the Canada Food Guide on what a three-year-old likes to eat. So Andrew Shearer told the dairy farmers that he doesn't think the new food guide is science-based and should be reviewed Mm. and revisited. And you'll recall, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, we've talked about this before, but the food guide came out in January, a new version, and it removes the dairy category uh, as a category that's separate as a food group on its own. And it says that people should eat more plant-based proteins and de-emphasizes the importance of meat. So the meat industry, the dairy industry, not super happy about this food guide. And Andrew Shear is clearly pandering um, to that industry. It's disappointing. Hmm. I'll say. Well, anyway, well-deserved zero for Andrew. And uh, Enjoy gr- that one. we're going to share a link in the in the show notes to a great op-ed by Jenny Henry. She's the founder of Nation Rising, a great advocacy group. They're pushing for an end to public subsidies for the meat and dairy industries for climate reasons, for animal protection reasons, for health reasons. And she had some great comments about why it's time to separate food and dietary recommendations from politics. Absolutely. Good stuff, Camille. Well, congratulations. We've managed to get through another episode of Paw and Order. So we have. So we have. Well, that's it for this episode. We're going to be back again in a couple weeks with more Paw and Order for you guys. Looking forward to it. Until then, take care, everybody. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Pawn Order.